Um, so now we have um, our next presenter, um, Megan, and I, I hope that people have read her book. I really enjoyed it. Um, Megan Angelo has uh, written a book that's, you know, pretty futuristic about how one of the ways or any of the ways that we can all end up in hot water getting so wrapped up in this world of uh, virtual everything, including virtual life. So um, I guess what I want to say is take it away, Megan, and talk about your writing experience or whatever it is that you want to talk about if it isn't your writing experience. Thank you, Chris. Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me. This is really a treat. Um, It's honestly really a treat at this stage of the pandemic to speak to anyone who are not my own children or who don't live in my house. So it really means a lot to me to be here today. And I'm so grateful to all of you for the interest in the book. Um, Thank you for the kind words, Chris. Um, So, yeah, it's just an honor. But I want to, I'm so fascinated by the theme of this conference, and I've found myself thinking about it kind of all week at different moments, um, fixing breakfast and in the shower and just thinking, wow, bridging the distance, what a perfect time to be talking about that, um, especially this week, in this state, in this year. It's just really spot on. Um, But I will tell you a little bit about myself first and about my writing. So I live in the Lehigh Valley, and I am originally from Quakertown, Pennsylvania. And in between those two places, I lived in New York City for about a decade, working in publishing and um, kind of I went there with the dream of being a magazine editor and I got there just in time for magazines to sort of completely fall apart as an industry. Um, But a lot of those experiences ended up informing followers later. So I, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, It's been something I've done since I'm very small, just like Orla, who is the protagonist in the book. And I kind of fought it out in print journalism for as long as I could in New York. I lost a few different jobs working at magazines as budgets were cut. And then I started freelancing. Um, I just was in my little apartment, which is became the apartment in the book. I'm not, uh, truly, I'm not a very creative person. There's so many things in this book that down to the floor plan are just ripped out of my real life. But, you know, I had just lost a job in the recession. I think it was April 2008. And I sort of had already re-upped for another year of exorbitant Manhattan rent. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a freelancer. So I started pitching places. And um, I had some wonderful gigs with the New York Times and with Glamour magazine. But I also had a lot of really bottom of the barrel gigs. Um, And I might have to go back to those someday. That's kind of the nature of being a writer. But that was really where I got my first glimpse of the world of the internet and of blogging. Um, I would be doing things like working for AOL, which I don't even think has its own websites anymore. But I remember very clearly one of my first assignments after I lost my job was to write posts for AOL for $25 a post about the fashion industry. So I would write things like um, Abercrombie & Fitch 
unveils, you know, fourth quarter earnings. And it would be very neutral. And then I would scroll down to the bottom of the piece and see comments that were like, you're ugly. I'm going to come to your house. Like it really, so this was where I began to realize um, that the internet was not all happiness and sunshine. And I, I started to kind of think about it very deeply. And I guess that's kind of where this book came from. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a book that is set half in 2015 and half in 2051. And in 2015, it's about a couple of girls who feel a real distance between the lives they have and the lives they want. Um, put simply, they want to be famous. They sort of want different kinds of fame, but that that's the deal. They want to be famous and they want to do anything they have to to get there. So they end up using the internet to kind of game the system and become famous. And the other half of the book is set in 2051. And it's about a woman named Marlo, who is very famous and would like to not be famous. And we see that her world is kind of, if you, if you um, are familiar with the Truman Show from way back, or just kind of the reality shows of today, it's kind of a souped up version of that. She's on camera all of the time. Um, she is live streamed every day to millions and millions of people across America. But we start to get a sense that America looks very different in 2051, that it's been fragmented geopolitically, that something has happened to the old Internet, as I call it in the book, which would be our Internet now, and that there's a new government-controlled Internet in its place. And um, most interestingly, perhaps for this audience, there are no more screens in 2051. All uh, communication is kind of like I describe it, like Siri in your head. By this point in time, screens have been pinpointed as a cause of a widespread dementia that has devastated the millennial generation. And they have been sort of banished from the earth and everything relies on brainwave technology. So instead of iPhones, people in the book in 2051 have something called the device in which you sort of forcefully think a command to it the way you might talk to a Siri or an Alexa now, and it thinks back to you. There's no audio input or output. There's no visual input or output. The images you see are called up in your head. Um, and the funny thing about it is when I was writing the book, I was going through drafts with my agent and my agent was like, I don't know about this device, brainwave technology. You know, like you're not a scientist. This seems sort of far fetched. And while the book was in edits, Elon Musk came out one day and was like, guess what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do brainwave technology. And I was like, that's perfect. You can always count on Elon Musk to sort of back up your, your wildest fictional dreams and schemes. So we kept the device. Um, but really, the thing that makes the book, I think, relatable to anybody, even the very many of us who aren't famous, is that all of us have kind of found ways to use technology to make up that difference between what our lives actually look like and what we'd like them to look like. 
Um, that can mean, you know, putting out a status that makes your day sound a lot more exciting than it was. Or that can mean, you know, you look up and suddenly you've been reading or listening to Facebook statuses for three hours when you thought you were going to clean your house. I mean, it's really interrupted our plans. Um, and that's what I was thinking about most when I was writing this book. So the really interesting thing about coming to you guys today has to do with the timing of this book. Um, I started writing this book in, I started thinking about it in 2015 and I started to do an outline, but when I really sat down to write it, when I opened a word document and said, okay, page one followers, here we go. Um, it was, I actually wrote down the date. It was October 27th, 2016. So I kind of, you know, had an idea about what the world was going to look like over the next few years. We were coming up on a historic election and, um, you know, things had just kind of been swimming along for the past few years. And, uh, I thought, okay, what I'm doing here is I'm writing dystopia. I'm writing a dark alternate reality where foreign countries get involved in our privacy and in our internet correspondence. And the country starts to turn sort of dark and ultra polarized. And won't it be a fun creative exercise to kind of escape into this dark cautionary world um, while the real world just kind of hums along? It didn't quite go that way. Um, I ended up writing the book over the next three years. And sometimes I would write with my head down for several hours and then go into the next room and turn on the news for a break for lunch and see that something I had written, thinking it was extremely dark, was kind of being echoed in the developments of that day's news. And that was not, I mean, you might think that's like a cool feeling, <laughs> like, oh, wow, I feel like a wizard. Um, but I didn't feel like a wizard because I still had to live in the world. And I, I started to feel kind of the way that I'm sure we've all been feeling over these past couple of years, no matter where your politics kind of naturally fall. It's been a time of incredible upheaval. It's been a time of just sort of a dizzying sense that anyone you meet at the grocery store could have a completely different set of facts from you and be acting upon them in a way that seems totally alien to you and what you believe strongly. And so it was just a very strange time to be creating. And then, of course, it kind of culminated with the book coming out the book came out in January of this year, and um, I went to New York in February to start, yeah, I wouldn't quite call it a tour. I mean, I'm a, I'm a debut author, and they don't, you know, they're like, you got to prove yourself, kids. But I had a bunch of things scheduled during the spring, and my first thing was a reading in New York. I went back to my old neighborhood, in fact, and read and told everyone okay, tell your friends across the country, here's where you can find me the next couple months. And then boom, that was the last time I ever left the house. <laughs> so, you know, 
it has felt really strange to have a book out that's about dystopia at a time that things feel quite dystopian. And what, what I have really learned this year is that talk about bridging the distance. We're all kind of going through almost a second reinvention. I mean, I hopped on a little early here and I heard um, my cousin, my dear cousin Sue talking about trying to teach from home. And yes, we didn't think we'd be doing that this year. That was not part of the plan. I mean, I think it's a, it's a small thing and it's a funny thing almost, but I think that one thing that stings about all of this, just a tiny bit, if you are someone who loves words and stories as much as I do, is that this is the year 2020. And if you ever gave some thought to the year 2020 when you were younger or when you were a kid, um, it just had this incredible futuristic sound, right? Like I sort of, I grew up in the 90s and I had this vision of the future imparted to me by the adults in the room that was kind of like, you know, not just flying cars and sort of progress on that front, but peace and equality. And I just never could have imagined that um, in a year that sounds like the future, we would feel so suddenly and so completely like we're kind of on our own and like we have to invent everything all over again. Um, and I would imagine that that's been uh, especially challenging for an audience like you guys who have I'm sure found so many ways around the status quo and had to reinvent and dodge and be resilient in so many different ways. And now to have a new layer of challenge on top of all of that, I can't even imagine, but, but that's how it feels, right? Like we're on our own. Um, and I think what I've learned in this year is that, you know, I wrote this whole book in which I had to make a lot of decisions about what the future would look like. I mean, I literally, I don't want to spoil things, but I didn't just invent a device. I had, you know, I invented part of the country um, seceding and all these different things that feel really sort of out of my league as just a stay-at-home mom in sweatpants in the sunroom being like, one more episode of Daniel Tiger, guys, I have to finish this chapter. That was what should have felt so intimidating. But what I've learned this year is that it's a lot harder to make decisions for a small future. It's a lot harder to say to yourself, okay, this is what I'm going to do to get through the third wave of this pandemic without cracking. It's a lot harder to look at your kids and say, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to go to school in my house. It's like one kid is going to school because their pandemic plan just felt really good. And on top of things and the other kid, the school that he went to said, well, we're just going to go back five days. And that didn't feel right to me. But the interesting thing is I'm not used to my opinions counting in that way. I'm not used to having a finger on the course of, my children's future in such an independent way, right? Like I think that we've all sort of become accustomed over the course of our lives to the idea that if you want to succeed, you follow a certain set of rules. I mean, that was me. I was the 
the type A first grader with her hand in the air, like, give me all the extra credit, give me all the after school clubs. And to me, the, you know, I, the other half of that bargain, although I couldn't have articulated at the time, was that then, you know, the world will deliver for you in terms of safety and in terms of decisiveness. The world will show you where to go. And now I find myself in this position where the rules have all been smashed to bits and we truly have to kind of make up our own new ones. So it's been very challenging, right? I mean, to take it back to writing for a second, this should have been the year that I, you know, tried really hard to finish a second book and sell it and play by the rules of publishing and I just couldn't do it. My, my kids are home. And for the first time, that type A girl had to sit back and be like, your year is not going to go as planned. And I'm sure all of us are feeling those kind of pressures. But I kind of think that we have a real opportunity right now, having been freed from the rules, maybe some of them temporarily, and maybe some of them forever, to redefine what a successful day looks like to us or what a successful school year looks like for our kids. Um, One thing that the tumult in this country right now has really changed in my life is that, you know, I, I suddenly feel like the rat race has been quieted and maybe it's not as important that I hit every professional goal this year. Maybe it's not as important that my kids go to the quote unquote best schools as they've been defined and be the top of the class in those best schools. I'm starting to look at things a little differently and how can I measure success in how happy I feel at night when I put my head down on the pillow? How can I measure success for my kids as maybe not their grades or if they go to the shiniest school, but as inclusivity and how can I make sure that before I'm seeing if they can get into a great college or get a great job someday, how can I be thinking about their first priority being walking into any room as a child and then later as an adult and seeing everyone for the different paths they've taken, the different challenges they've had, and being able to celebrate and accept those differences rather than pretending they aren't there. I think that's a huge thing for this generation. And what does that actually mean on a day-to-day basis? Well, I suddenly feel a little bit freer to make decisions that I thought, that I would have thought were tough in a different kind of year. You know, when someone says something that's maybe not overtly hateful, but the kind of thing that you would only say in a room full of, you know, say white, straight, cisgender, uh, able-bodied people. It seems easier now all of a sudden to be like, I can take a different path. I can say to my kids, actually, we don't talk like that. Um, and this is why that's wrong. And now we're going to move over here and talk to these people. I don't know why all of this felt harder in the past, but I think it is that sort of sudden freedom 
from the structure of the way things have always been that is going to be able to deliver us a better future, even if it's making our present really tough. So the last thought I have on that goes back to social media and the book itself, which is to say that I, um, I've also kind of gotten off social media a little bit, especially coming up to this election. And I'd be really interested to hear about your guys' experiences with that because I know there's different levels of accessibility among the apps. But it, one thing I do know is that Facebook, I believe, is the most accessible of all. And that can also be the trickiest one, right? Because that's where you go and you kind of get challenged seeing how people think differently from you. And it can be kind of alarming sometimes. It can sort of take up more of your day and more of your energy than you hope to devote to it. Um, so I, for one, have taken a step back from Facebook. And um, I would be interested to hear, you know, your guys' thoughts on all of that, too. So... I know I'm kind of all over the place, um, but this is just a, a crazy moment, and I'm grateful to be thinking about all of these things. Here I am, a week before the next election, talking to you about the book I started writing before the last one, and the years intervening, I think, have changed all of our lives. So I would love to hear from you guys about any of this, or if you have questions for me about writing, please ask them because everywhere I go, I find there are always future writers um, in the crowd. So yeah, I would love to hear from you. Greg, if you unmute yourself. There you go. Okay. Well, good morning, Megan. Great presentation. It was a wonderful way to start my morning, at least. Um, and uh, I am a writer, I'm hoping to get published someday. And uh, I actually have some publishing companies in my town and city here uh, that are uh, potentially good uh, good targets uh, for me. So I've got that. Um, I've got that going on. Um, so just maybe wanted you to uh, talk a little bit more about the publishing process and like going through that and working with your publisher, because I find that kind of thing uh, interesting. I too started out writing uh, newspaper columns for a local uh, newspaper and it was fun, but uh, as you said, print media. Uh, but then I also wanted to just mention quickly that I, um, as far as how I use social media, it's uh, a way of bringing out positivity. Uh, so I try to, um, first of all, I even before the pandemic, I started using social media to promote uh, musicians, to promote um, local businesses, and to promote different things of interest to the community. And I still do that. Um, however, uh, I have also uh, been using it to um, I'll do some things on Facebook sometimes what's something positive that has happened today everyone who reads please comment you know and I'll get a lot of things like that and um, I just find it takes away because there is a lot of what I call tribalism on social media so I just find that it takes that away so um, wanted to see if you could comment on the uh, writer publisher piece and thank you again for your presentation Megan. Oh, thank you, Greg. Thanks for being here. And yes, 
you make a really good point um, about the positive aspects of social media. In fact, it's kind of funny, right? Because I mean, as, as I went out to promote this book, the early press that I did, which was like December, January, would all be like, wow, yes, tell us, tell us all these cautionary things about social media. And then very quickly, you know, by the time it's March, social media and the internet and like stuff that we're doing right now, it was all we had, right? And, you know, all of a sudden the publishing company is calling me and being like, could you um, think of some positive things to say about the internet too? Because um, we're all stuck in our houses now and it's all we have. Please don't take the last thing we have. So you're right. And I thank you for being one of those positive people that breaks up some of the tribalism, which is a great word for it, that can be so stressful. Um, as far as the publishing stuff goes, I'll tell you a little bit about um, how it worked for me. It was a little non-traditional. Um, I'm sure you've found the same thing as someone who writes for a living. Sometimes you don't know why you're doing something for so little money. And other times you're like, okay, it's like an up and down thing. But sometimes things pay off in strange ways. And sure enough, um, an old boss that I had had at one of those, you know, ramen noodle jobs went on to become something else. And she asked me one day, have you ever thought about writing fiction? I've been reading your voice. I think, you know, I think you'd be great. And I would be happy to introduce you to my agent if you have ever written fiction. And I had not told anyone, but I was already working on followers. So I said to her, I am working on something. I'm going to come back to you when I feel like it's ready. And I was very lucky to end up acquiring an agent through that connection. Now, that's not common. Generally, what you do is you finish your manuscript. Um, if it's fiction, it has to be the full book. It has to be the whole thing. If it's nonfiction, sometimes it can be a proposal that says what the book uh, is going to be about. And then maybe a couple, like the first three chapters to give people a taste of your voice. And what you do is you query. And that means you get it all together in an email. You look up agents' email addresses, which are thankfully in this day and age very readily available. And it's not weird at all. They expect to hear from random authors. And you start sending your stuff off in waves. Like maybe you research, um, you know, if you're writing a science fiction book about wizards, you look on the internet and you see who had, what agent has bought a bunch of books in this vein. And then you pick the three that you think would be the best for your book and you send them off. And then you wait six weeks. If you don't hear back from them, you send it off to another three. So, it can be a bit of a, uh, you know, it's a process that requires patience, obviously, and um, some flexibility. But what I think is great about uh, the publishing industry is that compared to uh, like film or television, where there's so many layers to getting things done, the literary agents really are accessible and eager to hear from authors. So that makes it kind of a very democratic process um the other the the after that what happened was my agent worked with me on the book in revisions for uh, a full year I would say I mean the thing that I gave her was which I was so proud to hand her was in hindsight absolute garbage and it needed a lot of work 
I probably threw out 150 pages over the course of the revision process. And then when she was finally satisfied with it, we had a round of beta readers, which is when you give it to people you trust that are uh, have great literary sort of acumen for seeing what will sell and what won't. When they were all satisfied with it, it went out to market. And it took uh, about a few weeks to find a publishing house that would buy it. They bought it, more editing, <laughs> lots of marketing and promotion in which, you know, you travel to different regions of the country and go to sales conferences. Basically, you sit at a table and say, okay, like you literally have one minute to pitch your book to these different bookshops and different libraries. And then um, the bell rings and that person's gone and you do it all again. There was about six months of that. And then it's in stores. Um, but it's wonderful. It's great that you have some publishers around you, too, because I'm sure the local connection um, will be something that will perk their ears up right out of the gate when you reach out to them. So good luck. Anybody on the panel aside? Folks, if you want to raise your hand and ask Megan a question, it is... Alt-Y on a PC, Option-Y on a Mac, uh, Star-9 on a telephone. And if you're using the iPhone or the Android app, there's a raise hand button uh, towards the bottom of the app. So, Megan, uh, this is Doug Hunsinger. I'm curious, with the pandemic now, how did that change your marketing strategy from what you planned? And how, what, how do you d cope with it now? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I mean, it's basically just like everybody else. It's been an adjustment of expectations. There's, I feel lucky, frankly, that my book didn't come out in March, April, May, June, all the way up till now, because uh, you rely tremendously on independent bookstores and foot traffic through any kind of any kind of brick and mortar bookstore. It's sort of one of these last industries where it feels like there's lots of buzz online, um, but it's still very much that hand selling that's done by the person behind the desk at your favorite local bookstore going, oh my gosh, I just got this book in. It's so great. You've got to read it right now. So, you know, it did shift to all online rather than in person. But I would say the majority of the events that I was supposed to do did not end up happening online. Um, so the whole, the whole promotional tour just kind of got canceled. And now actually I'm already into the paperback release. The paperback's coming out November 10th. So that, you know, in the beginning they were like, well, we'll just do all of this around the paperback. Um, but clearly we're still not, back to that kind of environment. So it really has just been, the entire strategy has been to keep myself calm and be like, you know what? It's not exactly as you thought it was going to be, but I'm still really grateful for the success that it has had. And like, it's a very high compliment to me when I get someone who reaches out to me now on social media or anything else and says, you know, I read this book um, last week and it really took my mind off of things and it just feels very special to be a part of people's leisure time in a time when that leisure time is so crucial to our mental health so 
so yeah, it's been very different. Um, but just like all of you guys, you just roll with the punches, you know? Are you on like Amazon and uh, are through Apple and all the others or how, how is it distributed online? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's on Apple books. It's on audible. Um, in fact, I've had a lot of success with the audible version. The audible version is very popular. Um, the actress who did the voices is wonderful. Um, and yeah, so that's been really neat to see too, people consuming the book that way. Did you pick that person or did, did the publishing company do it? I got to pick her actually, which was a great little power trip. That was fun. Um, they gave me uh, like four different uh, potential actresses and I listened and I thought she would be great. And she knocked it out of the park. Her name's Jamie Matler. And what a cool niche. Uh, I, something I could absolutely never do. She does voices for all the characters and it's just, it blows my mind to listen to her work. Wow, very cool. Well, this is, Thank you. I'm sorry. I just cut my husband off. Isn't that rude of me? <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, so does she. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> um, this is Chris Hunsinger, and I was just, um, you know, it's really fascinating to see, you know, as you said, we have so much more intentionality in, in our lives now that we can make our, you know, like you could say, no, my kids, this child is not going to go back to school full time or whatever. And it, it's really interesting to see that the people that are that if you if you were drawing lines about where people's attitudes were, the people that were maybe what you would call libertarian types that said the government can't tell me anything. And the people who are um let's think outside the box and go into the future are really now in, to some degree on the same side of the page in that they're all saying we can make our own choices. We are strong. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. It really is. Right. And I, I mean, you know, I just keep looking around frankly and being like, I'm sure the grown up is coming soon. Um, Cause I'm not qualified for all of this. It's just a really, but I have to be, I mean, I've, I've brought these three, small futures into the world and I have my own to think of and it's just this incredibly clarifying moment I almost feel like it's a second adolescence where all over again I have to be like what clique am I a part of um when am I going to stand up and use my voice to say something's wrong um where am I going to position myself and my family so that we can live in a way that fits with our values and benefits everybody rather than just us it's just an it's an incredibly clarifying moment on every level and i think that like when we look back at this year five years from now ten years from now we just won't be able to believe what we were mentally and emotionally able to contend with because it's just so many issues coming to a head all at once hey megan it's sue hi sue um hi i i really enjoyed the book um I just like these, the, you did a fabulous job with the characters and just so much of Floss and how she, just so deceptive and all of that. And I just, I think that there probably really are people out there like that. And I wonder if um, your experiences in New York City, if you really saw any of that kind of, you know, backstabbing and um, 
did that give you any fuel for this book? Oh, yes. Um, So what I saw most of all was just like the weird ways in which fame gets manufactured because I just thought being, you know, I, I sort of ended up becoming a journalist, especially when I worked for Glamour and the New York Times, where I was doing a lot of entertainment stuff. And I didn't really realize until I got it. I started, I got into that niche because I love to write about television. I love to write about movies. But I didn't understand the celebrity component until I got into it. And really what that looks like is, you know, I would go and write about, um, like, you know, the late Chadwick Boseman, who was a beautiful person and a wonderful person to interview. I'm so sad that he passed away. Um, but what that looks like is like, okay, Chadwick Boseman calls me and I'm in my house and I ask him a bunch of questions that about 12 different people have vetted. They've required me to send the questions beforehand and they've struck several of them. And he already knows from his team how to answer all of these questions. So it's incredibly manufactured. And for the people who are just coming up and for the people who are really striving to be famous, they are learning to do that manufacturing before they ever have someone working with them. You know, young people now, they know how to stage themselves from their bedroom better than a whole team of stylists, photographers, and photo editors knows how to do it at a photo shoot. Um, And so what it's sort of led to is this class of fame seekers who they're not as focused as much on having a talent or a creative contribution as they are just building their brand, as we always hear, and kind of um, getting followed for the way they look online, the things they say online. And so, of course, the central um, girl doing this in the book is named Floss. And she's, you know, she's very beautiful. She's very cunning. But sort of her biggest the quality that's most important to her becoming famous is just she's a little bit shameless. She's a little bit willing to sacrifice a bit of her dignity and, and put herself out there again and again and again and again until people just sort of accept like, okay, I guess this is someone we should be looking at. And that's how a lot of people are getting famous now. Um, and to see it behind the scenes, to be the person at glamour.com going, okay, I guess I'll write about this girl going out for frozen yogurt even though she totally planned it and she called the camera. Like it was very, very interesting to see the incredibly unglamorous ways um, that fame gets made. So can we trust any, but any, any news story, any stories about people anymore? (laughs) I mean, you know, Um, you think, you think there are, there are publications that you would, that you should be able to trust, you know, whether it's uh, the Atlantic or, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you, where you stand on the spectrum of uh, right versus left. But is there any place you can trust anymore? I do think so. I mean, when you look at any sort of celebrity, celebrity related coverage, whether it's in an editorial outlet or whether you're just watching a reality show, absolutely assume whatever you are seeing has been manipulated to the nth degree. There is, there is no natural authenticity left in that space. However, when it comes to the actual news, as someone who's worked in the media now for a very long time, the idea of the media being biased, 
I don't want to call it, it, it's not that it's so overblown. It's just that we didn't used to think about it this way. You know, everybody knew that the New York Times editorial board leaned liberal and that the Wall Street Journal's editorial board leaned conservative. Um, But when you see a fact-checked piece of news in a major outlet like that, I'm here to tell you it is literally impossible for that piece to be something that came purely out of a writer's bias or agenda. And the reason I can tell you that is because fact checkers, which is the people who sit and take your story when you're done and tear it apart and absolutely nail you to the wall for anything you can't back up with 300 different sources, have taken hours and years off my life with their incredible devotion to the truth. I mean, this sort of widespread lack of trust in journalism I think is really sad for all of us because people have kind of come to lump in those institutions with a lot of credibility and a long track record of telling the truth with things like blogs and cable news and iffy websites that end up leading to things that get posted on Facebook and spread like wildfire. I really, I still cling to the major newspapers, and I cling to my local newspaper, um, The Morning Call, based out of Allentown. I really think that if you're looking for a place to sink your trust and sink your support, look to your local newspaper, because that, for me, is sort of the last frontier of journalism that we absolutely have to have and absolutely have to trust, especially now. When you did interviews, was there anybody that you like finished and thought, wow, what a cool person that was? Um, I don't know if you can comment on something like that or not, but like, who would be like one of the coolest people you ever interviewed? Oh, that's such a good question. Let me think about that because I love your positivity. Everybody always wants to know who was a jerk, <laughs> which of course <laughs> I can't say. Um, but off the top of my head, um, Tina Fey is always lovely. I've interviewed her several times. She's just extremely down to earth. Um, John Hamm from Mad Men is another one who was incredibly thoughtful, uh, just a total gem. Um, when I sort of towards the end of my tenure in New York, my job at the New York Times was to uh, write about the comedy scene. So I would be going to lots of you know, $2, $5 comedy shows and kind of just listening for people that I thought would be on television in a year or two and then profiling them for the time so that we could look cool. Like we, like we found them first. So um, through that, I've interviewed a lot of the people on Saturday Night Live who are on Saturday Night Live now. Um, Michael Che and Colin Jost who update, who anchor weekend update now are both wonderful people. Um, Kate McKinnon, who's been a huge breakout star on Saturday Night Live, is absolutely lovely. I mean, you really have, um, coming out of comedy, a lot of people who are extremely down to earth and who kind of remain that way forever because you really have to start from absolutely nothing and kind of claw your way up. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, just thinking that about comedy, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you think of Trevor Noah and you think of what, you know, how 
how he has presented the world both on his show and in his book and all that kind of stuff. You're talking about somebody who's looked at a world that we, we don't normally think about from a point of view that we don't normally have. Yeah, he's brilliant. He is. And I mean, look what um, I was just thinking about this last night. Like he has done such a great job through all of this. Um, the late night hosts have all really stepped up. Um, Seth Myers is another one too that I got to interview several times and who's extremely smart, extremely kind. But yeah, I mean, they, it's the job of comedy has shifted so much in the past few years. I mean, if you even think back to what your favorite things were four years ago, whether it was a stand-up album or a show or just anyone you followed who's sort of considered a funny person, Things were so different. We were talking about such different things. Now when you turn on virtually any late night show, you're hearing so much more about the news and you're, you're hearing them occasionally step outside of their host persona to say, we need to say right now that we don't agree with this or that, or we need to say right now that we're thinking of the victims of this or that. The culture that we're in has reshaped every area of art and i'm so fascinated to see where it goes from here if it will always remain kind of this hyper conscious um thing that we consume or if we'll ever go back to the time of just pure light and fun that exists outside whatever's happening in the world i suffice to say it was much much easier for me to be covering comedy from 2008 to 2012 than it would be now. Funny is a different thing now. One of the best pieces of television I ever saw was Colbert after the 2016 election when Trump had been declared president. He just, uh, you talk about somebody who is intelligent. I mean, Colbert mm-hmm. is just off the charts. And mm-hmm. uh, um, anyway, so it was just beautiful. Yeah, he's incredible. He's he's done an incredible job. And it's amazing to think um, that, you know, only a few years ago, he was someone we knew mostly through a character. And now he's really become this voice for the country that is funny. He's funny every single night. But um, I think he's incredibly iconic in the way that almost some, we think of almost like old school journalists. He has a real um, gravitas and warmth and character about him. I'm a huge fan of his as well. Yeah, I've seen him interviewed, you know, where he's just talking about Colbert the person. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of depth there. I mean he's uh you know he's got a very interesting personal story too. He's got a lot of tragedy in his life. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a real human. Yeah, he really is. So can I offer a, a different opinion here? Um uh, like to talk about people in the uh, performance realm. My own experiences have been uh, that I just can't deal with or stand people in the uh, performance arts because of their self-involvement. And um, I remember my son uh, attended the University of Arts and he was involved in photography. But, of course, there's the performing arts side of the school. 
And I just couldn't stand any of them uh, because of their self-involvement. I understand that that's a little bit unfair. And I also think that I don't think you, you can get ahead unless you're totally devoted and self-involved um, in today's performance world. Do you think that that's true? Or have you met people who are genuinely themselves and not always on? Mm. Yeah, always on is a really interesting concept because there are definitely those people out there, right? I mean, I have sat across from a restaurant table at someone thinking, what am I possibly going to take back to my editor? Because this person is just playing a character. And, um, you know, the two worst kinds of interviews are the ones where, as you say, someone's always on and they're just kind of a heightened version of a person um, or the interviews where someone is just saying the same five things their publicist told them to say over and over and over again. Um, but it's an interesting point you bring up because I don't, I can't speak to how it used to be, but I think you're right that especially to become an actor or anyone who has kind of that forward facing visibility, right? Like, I mean, you can be a writer, um, and, and it doesn't really matter what you put out there in terms of here's what I wore today. Here's, um, you know, here's the shake that I like to drink for breakfast, um, which is a good thing for me because I've pretty much been wearing the same two pairs of pants for the last eight months. But it, you're right it, that self-involvement is kind of becoming way more key to anyone who wants to be an actor, a singer, a model, anything visual like that, because they are expected to have a brand and a persona that goes on way beyond, you know, the moment they step off stage. And I do think that you either, some people are born with the kind of personality you're describing that is not your favorite kind of personality. Um, you're born with that kind of persona and that makes you a very easy fit for this. But I also think there are a lot of people out there who say, I'm going to stay authentic. I'm going to stay down to earth. And for them, it is a struggle because they are continually challenged by that machine. You know, even me, the tiny little dose of spotlight I've been given for this book, I constantly have the people around me saying, can you please post more on Instagram? Can you please? And then I'll, then I'll post like a picture of like the leaves outside my house. Right. And they'll be like, we met in your face. Can you please post your face? Can you please do some videos? Can you please talk about, you know, your favorite socks? It's not natural to me. And so I mostly just say no, but it is a bit of emotional conflict because even when you're just putting out a book, suddenly there are people around you whose jobs and salaries depend in some small part in how willing you are to play ball. So it's kind of a very tough game to find your way through in a way that makes you feel really good about yourself and your choices. Um, so I would not want to be the people who are really, really famous because you're right. Sometimes they are very self-involved naturally and other times maybe they look self-involved. Um, but they are struggling too with, with that perception. 
Well, it's sort of the death of humility as a character trait, and that and that is sad. I I, I think that that that's the uh, greater lesson that people seem to be learning that there is no room for humility. That somehow humility now is seen as a character flaw. That is sad. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I think, unfortunately, that's not confined to the performing arts. I mean, if you look at kids coming out into the workforce today, they are encouraged too to, um, you know, have beyond different kinds of social media and to do a lot of things that just didn't enter my head when I came out of school in 2006, which is really not even that long ago. So it is kind of pervading all these different types of people. And if, you know, one thing that I think maybe will come out of this moment is that maybe we will take a look at those rules again. Um, You know, in the book, I won't spoil it, but there's kind of a massive event that you know is going to happen and that happens between the present and the future um, that does kind of break all the rules about this stuff and forces us to start over. And the reason I put that in the book is because I wondered the whole time I was writing it, when, you know, when or what would take us off this course? You know, I signed up for Facebook in 2003 when I was a college sophomore. And to be totally frank with you guys, I thought I was going to use it for a couple of years to see if, you know, that cute boy from across campus was at that one party last night or not. I did not imagine that I would still have a Facebook page as a 36-year-old mother of three. Um, But I never felt sort of this tipping point until now, frankly, where I was like, I have to get off it. So this is what I'm constantly thinking about. What would stop this freight train? And maybe this moment won't stop it, but will have us reassess the speed of it and the direction of it a little bit. On that note, that sounds like a hopeful thing to me. I <laughs> I think we really do need to um, reassess how we look at so- social media to control our lives, but that's the that we run out of time and we certainly do want to thank you Megan for your morning and your thoughts and certainly it did give me food for thought so. well thank you guys for having me it was an absolute pleasure to be with you I'm really honored fun presentation thank you thank and, you